Google Search is a highly interactive JavaScript application. As you enter a query, results are being automatically suggested to you before you even finish typing. When you press enter, some of your search results may be widgets that represent the weather or the price of a stock or a recipe for green bean soup or a language translation for a phrase. These complex front-end components are loading dynamically. The Google search application is not prefetching every single possible widget that you might ask for. It's not prefetching the weather widget and the price of a stock widget and the currency conversion widget. All of these things are a little bit expensive and they would slow down the page if Google were to prefetch the JavaScript for all of these different components. But the results do load very quickly. If you search for a currency conversion, Google loads the results of that currency conversion widget quite quickly. So you know that Google is doing some advanced JavaScript engineering to deliver you the code for that currency conversion widget very quickly. And Google has many other examples of advanced JavaScript programming. The company is mostly known for back-end engineering inventions like MapReduce and TensorFlow and Dremel and Spanner. And to turn these back-end tools into user-facing products, Google develops its own JavaScript frameworks and infrastructure to deliver information from the back-end to the front-end. Back-end and front-end are terms that are not very precise. A back-end is a back-end only relative to a front-end. And at Google, there are so many layers of infrastructure between a user and the data center that if you're an engineer working on a service at Google, you probably have several front ends on one side of you and several back ends on either side of you. It's a multi-layered, multi-tiered infrastructure. Malta Ubel is a senior staff engineer at Google, and he's heavily involved in Google's JavaScript infrastructure. He has written about managing large JavaScript applications in detail, and he also works on AMP, which is an open source project for delivering web pages in a fast, performant format. Malta joins the show to describe Google's history with JavaScript frameworks, the process of building front-ends and middleware to deliver JavaScript applications, and the engineering behind the AMP project. There are criticisms of AMP but some of them misunderstand how the AMP technology actually works. AMP allows pages to be cached and prefetched and served to a user more quickly. In the case of Google Search, when you search and you get some results that are AMP pages, accelerated mobile pages, all that's going on is that the page is being prefetched. So when you click on the page, it's going to load instantly because the page is actually already loaded on your phone. And the reason it can do that is because AMP pages are conforming to a specific format that is easier to cache and prefetch and have predictable performance characteristics. So the criticisms are often that AMP centralizes pages around being served from Google Search or some other confused accusation towards Google like that. 
But AMP does not necessarily centralize pages around being served from Google Search. Another good example of AMP speeding up pages in a realm that is not Google Search is Reddit. If you click on a subreddit about programming, for example, and one of the pages listed is an AMP page, then if you click on the AMP page, you're going to get it loading really quickly because the AMP page has been prefetched by Reddit. And that AMP page is not necessarily being prefetched from Google servers. There are Cloudflare AMP caches. I believe there's now a Bing AMP cache. And these are places where these pages are hosted that are outside of Google. So this is a pretty interesting show. We talk about a lot of different subjects, and I really enjoyed having Malta on the show. Before we get started, I also want to mention we launched a new podcast recently, which is Fintech Daily. Fintech Daily is about payments and cryptocurrencies and trading and the intersection between finance and technology. You can find it on fintechdaily.co, that's fintechdaily.co, or on Apple or Google Podcasts. And this show is going to have multiple different hosts. We are looking for other volunteer hosts who want to participate right now, who want to cover areas of fintech. And if you're interested in becoming a host, you can send us an email to host at fintechdaily.co. That's host at fintechdaily.co. And I hope you like this show. I hope you like Fintech Daily. Malta Ubel, you are a senior staff engineer at Google. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. You've been heavily involved in building front-end infrastructure at Google for several years. You write about JavaScript. How has JavaScript usage at Google evolved since you started there? Well, that's a very good question. I think you have to go back to maybe even the launch of like Google Maps and Gmail, where we very much innovated in what you know, people thought could be done on the web. You know, you have to think back to the world of like Internet Explorer 6 and, and stuff like that. And but we were we definitely didn't yet know how to build web applications at all. It was all kind of invented in mid-flight. And then over the years, I think we just like got it wrong over and over again. And then eventually came to a state where, where we actually, I think right now we're pretty confident saying like, we actually kind of know how to build applications in a way that is really scalable and has like good outcomes in a high percentage of, of attempts. That's how I would put it. That's what we're trying to do today. That basically always good. It's not great because there's some like superstar engineer who really knows it's what, what to do. It's that the teams are really successful at scale. I have seen a wide variety of ways that people manage the front end of their applications. It seems to be more of a wild west than perhaps back end development. There seems to be more standardization around how projects are managed, the different roles in those projects, the interactions between front end engineers amongst themselves, I think is less standardized than perhaps the interactions between back-end engineers, you know, broadly speaking, maybe not at Google. Do you think that's the case? Do you think that's accurate? I actually think it's not accurate. Where I have seen big problems in the past 
is when the communication between front-end and back-end engineers is not good. So that is, is a very real problem. I think that from within those disciplines, it's always just that you know the other one might look more or less organized, but I think that's more of a myth. What's very real is that often these disciplines don't talk to each other much. I think that's kind of where the notion of the full-stack engineer kind of came in, who at least the hope is capable of kind of navigating the disconnect and, and building solutions that work end-to-end. But I don't think that's, that was necessarily all that successful. And, and so this gap of communication is, is absolutely real and, and a problem. You can organize entire teams of front-end engineers working on the UI layer or the middleware layer. You could also organize engineers where a front-end engineer works within a product team and the front-end engineer works with back-end engineers and you're just trying to ship a product. At Google, is there a standard model for how front-end engineers are organized? You know, Google is a very big company, so we definitely do it all of the possible ways, I guess. But there is strong bias, and I think the by far most common way is to have a product team in which people just take on different roles, but they all work together. We also very much use a you know multi-layer architecture. Famously, every layer basically is a bunch of protocol buffers talking to the next level of protocol buffers. And I think at that stage, it's just such that you know effectively everyone at Google is a front-end engineer, right? Because there's always a back-end that you're talking to whether it's you're working on Spanner and you're just a front-end to Bigtable, or you're working on an application and you're a front-end to Spanner, or you're working on a UI and you're a front-end to that application, you know, this pattern actually repeats itself quite dramatically. And because the, the teams are so big, it definitely happens that you do have an organizational split that isn't just the classic front-end and back-end, but you very much often have what we would then call more infrastructure teams that work on kind of the fundamental problems that don't necessarily are very low level, but definitely disconnected from the product itself. At the level that you spend most of your time, I think it is the frontest end because it is the layer that gets rendered to the user. It's the front end rendering engine and the JavaScript that's being executed in the user's browser. Is that correct, or is there also some layers of middleware and back-end programming that you spend your time in? So I think I mean, my favorite anecdote is that, for example, like Chrome has a back-end team, and that back-end team is the Blink team that works on the rendering engine, right? Because the rendering engine that makes the pixels is a back-end to Chrome, which is the, the actual UI. Again, this, this matter for scales very much to, to every level. My work on that I currently do on AMP does span between different layers, but possibly not as much, definitely not in the, in the form of doing. However, my previous work on JavaScript infrastructure very much spans the, the whole stack. And we were mostly actually thinking about these things in an end-to-end fashion where what happens on the client side is just you know a, a small part, but everything has to fit together end to end. How does the tooling for a JavaScript developer inside of Google differ from what developers outside of Google have available? I think there's a few key differences. So one of them is that Google has a standardized build system, 
it's open source as Basil, Basil, however you pronounce it. And this system is just used for building everything at Google from Java to C++, probably some Haskell on there as well, Go and JavaScript. So, you know, you never have to wonder like, how do I build this project? There's always, you know, exactly one command to do it and it does the whole thing. So that's, I think uh, at a fundamental level, that's the biggest difference. Then going up a little bit, we currently, I mean, we use a bunch of JavaScript frameworks. You will find a lot of Angular, especially for internal apps. You will find a lot of Polymer. You will find a lot of React if you look a little bit closer. But you'll also find a lot of the stuff that I've been working on. It's a framework that's called Wiz. It's not open source. And it's currently powering most of our consumer-facing applications. So it's very much designed for, for something that, you know, it's not a rare type of application, but at Google it's very common, which is a, a highly you know, tuned, highly UX refined custom application targeted at a lot of users. You said it's called Wiz? Yeah. So these JavaScript frameworks, there have been a number of frameworks that we've covered historically, things like Angular, we covered React a lot, Vue.js. Is Wiz in the same category of frameworks or is it a framework at a different level of abstraction? We have a bigger system that kind of goes further vertically up and down the stack. But Wiz is at the same level of abstraction, like very roughly speaking, because you you know named a very large category of frameworks. But it it's in a few ways fundamentally different and uniquely suitable for what we want, but it certainly opens up a lot of trade-offs. There was this Kubernetes open source project got started as an open source version of Borg. And my understanding was the main reason that they didn't open source it, uh, open source Borg itself, was because Borg was so tightly coupled to the Google-specific infrastructure that it, it was a project that just wouldn't make sense to open source. Is that been the case with Wiz, where it's just so tightly coupled with the Google infrastructure that it just doesn't make sense to open source? It's a different case. And we've certainly discussed open sourcing it. We just felt like we didn't necessarily add enough value to justify the cognitive buy, like cognitive load for the community for yet another framework. And based on that, kind of we made the decision not to open source. I actually think that this was a mistake, but and it might still be a mistake. And you know, maybe we'll change our mind. What I didn't realize at the time was how unique the framework actually was and its capabilities and how attractive that would be for other use cases. When we started launching apps on it, it was kind of the time when React got popular and that seemed fine, right? And people seemed happy. So why would you give them something else if they're already happy? What I didn't realize, for example, is how much like startup time is a problem for React because you have this process that's called hydration that where you basically, even if you service that render your app, you still have to effectively clients that render it again on the client, even if you don't expect any changes. And I didn't realize at the time how big of a problem this might be. And that's why I didn't realize how big of an advantage Wiz would have because it was very much designed for having like a nice programming model that people would enjoy, but on the other hand, have effectively a zero startup time where you just kind of 
have the app in front of you and, and there's never this kind of called uncanny valley where you see it, but you can't use it. That was something that we very much wanted to not have. And I didn't, again, realize at the time that this was um, such a big problem in the open source framework space. When did the focus at Google shift from Angular as the most leading edge framework to Wiz, if Wiz is now the most popular one? You know, so again, it's a very big company. And whenever you ask for any technology, you'll find someone, someone using it. When we actually decided to build Wiz, we had experimented with Angular. And I think definitely at the time, because they, I must say that they very much pivoted and now have technology that if we had had it like, you know, five years ago, you know, probably have built on it actually. But in so Angular, it, you mean? Yeah. But the situation was definitely in a state back then where I would classify Angular as aimed as a highly productive framework that makes compromises in the fidelity of the application. And this is certainly true for application startup time. So at the time, I don't think that Angular actually supported server-side rendering, and that was an absolute must-have for us. Definitely not negotiable. So I've done a lot of coverage of this Kubernetes community recently, and what was interesting about the Kubernetes world was there was a time where there were a bunch of different container management orchestration open source systems that were competing for Mindshare, and then eventually people settled around Kubernetes, and that settling around a standard led to much, much faster developments and much more benefits to the open source community. Do you think that'll happen with the front-end frameworks where eventually there'll be some kind of centralization, or do you feel that front-end is, again, obviously there's that <laughs> there's that dodgy term, front-end versus back-end, but these JavaScript frameworks, maybe that would be the term you would want to use. Will there be more centralization, more standardization at some point? I don't think that's the way it's going. There are a few things that are going to happen, though. One of them is that many of these frameworks are you know, modeled around some notion of components, and we have seen the standardization of web components, which are now appearing in, in all the rendering engines, finally. And so there's one thing that I'm very sure of, which is that we will see web components as the basically only technology used for so what I would call leaf components. So, you know, your application is made up of all these application components, but it has like a button in it and it has a like a slider and stuff like that. And for now, these like leaf components are typically rewritten every time someone makes a new framework and then that just doesn't make any sense, right? And you can encapsulate them as web components and get a much better reusability across frameworks. And I think that's something that will absolutely happen and, and, and makes a lot of sense. And it will, you know, somewhat ironically, lower the bar for new frameworks to enter the market because right now there's a, there's a mode because you have the best components, which also, by the way, is why some frameworks might not be super happy about this development. But basically, I think that, that layer of the front-end stack is going to get commoditized by web components and frameworks will go move up the stack to be kind of responsible for you know the application itself but not not for every every last component and that that's i think something that's definitely going to happen and it's going to have an effect like you describe here which is that because not everyone has to reinvent everything all the time you get much better quality because people can focus on the stuff they actually you know are good at as an application framework those leaf components, those are things like date pickers and exactly. buttons. We don't need to reinvent these things. 
Yes, but we are very much reinventing them in a you know in a one to two year cycle. You want to make them like look different every year. That's fine, right? But then you don't have to like make them look different in in five platforms. Yes, and so the reason that that happens today is because the leaf component idea is tightly coupled to however those leaf components are getting rendered and updated on the page. Yeah, and they are like basically they're they're implemented in terms of the component notion of the application framework. And I think we like the web community made two mistakes over the last three, four years. One was that web components were introduced and people gave them two jobs. One was here you can be something that you can reuse. And the other one was, and you should also use it to build applications. And then you did the same thing with all the application frameworks saying like, this is really good for building applications. And you know, you can kind of use it to make buttons if you want to. And that turned out to be just, in my opinion, a mistake. So. Web components should have been sold for what they're good at, which make, is to make reusable leaf components. And application frameworks should stick to what they're good at, which is you know making applications. And so merging those two together, I think, is actually a very powerful combination. And I'm pretty bullish on that being very successful over the next few years. You wrote this piece that was a, a tour de force. I, was, I read it a couple times about managing large JavaScript applications and it suggests that there are things that can go very wrong when a JavaScript application gets big and if you're not managing it with a mind to the scale of that application. What starts to go wrong when a JavaScript application gets big? So I do want to say and I think in the in, in the title of my talk in my medium piece, I put JavaScript in parentheses because many of these things apply to all large applications. Why I did focus on JavaScript because, first of all, it was at JSConf where I gave the talk. And second of all, because examples I'm giving are out of a JavaScript world. But I think some of the learnings are universal. And in all honesty, I also copied the learnings from microservice framework that Google was building and that you know our architecture is embedded into. And so these are very much things that I basically ported from more stack-independent systems to be very front end specific. And I think in that talk, one of the biggest pattern that I have identified that goes wrong is in, in large applications is if you have central configuration. So it's a universal thing. So in, in, in JavaScript, it might apply to the routes of your application, or it might apply to having a single CSS file. So these are very concrete um, examples. But I think every application at some point has a notion of configuration. And what I've seen is, is that is you know a single file, then it really has a few negative effects. One is that you know either this is a point of contention and of ownership, who gets to make edits, people might not be feel empowered to make edits. It is a point of kind of a deterrent to deleting code because you have this pretty isolated thing, you would just want to get rid of it, but because there are these central configuration files that you have to you know, also make edits in, it makes that simple change suddenly much more complex and that deters deleting code. And that is what really in the end leads to large applications that there's lots of stuff in them that you, you know, really don't want. Where this is a bit worse on the client side compared to the, to the server side is that if your server side application gets too large in a very physical sense, you notice because you suddenly have to buy more RAM. But if you're, maybe that's fine. Maybe you can buy more RAM. But if you're on the client side and you run out of RAM, then your application crashes and there's nothing you can do. You've written about 
some specific examples of heavy applications or large applications and how you manage them. One that is explored in that article is the Google search application and the fact that when you search for weather in San Francisco, you get a little widget that pops up. And then if you search for convert currency from $5 to rubles, you will get another little widget that pops up. And you know that the Google search application is intelligently managing those the appearance of those different components, because there's probably thousands of little utility components that can potentially get rendered. How does that management work of all those nice little utilities that can be prompted to appear with just the Google search box? I like this example because it completely intuitively shows that if you just like loaded every possible you know widget to the client, then it will get prohibitively large. Because you know you can always think of more, and there, yes, as you say, there's thousands of them, and many applications actually have cases like this. So what we do is very much that on the server side, you know, when the search is assembled, some system says, okay, we should like show this special widget in this case for like currency conversion, and then it's included in the in the output, and instructions are sent to the client to load the associated JavaScript, or in some cases, it would be sent with the HTML response for that, for that page. And then as, the, the, as this widget renders, it kind of you know, bootstraps itself and says, you know, I need these three components to actually make that pull-down menu work. And so kind of the impl- application is you know, initialized incrementally. And so what, how the way I would describe it is more of a pull pattern. So you... It's not that you know you have to statically configure an application with all that's in it, and then you load some subset of that to the client. It's like the part that the user is actually using is what's being loaded to the client and, and usable. And what this kind of leads to is something you can actually in express very well in like O notation. So in terms of algorithmic complexity. So in this world. The code, the JavaScript code that's actually loaded to the client that's executed is a function of what the user is using as opposed to some other thing. Like it's not a function of what we thought the user might use, or it's not a function of just everything. So it's, it's just a function of what the user is using. And in my experience, that's the only actually scalable way because while apps get really big, the subset of that app that the user is actually using is relatively constrained in any case I've seen. And so it's always better to bias the JavaScript you're loading to the client based on what the user is actually using than to try to be smart and predicting it for them or even loading everything at once. I want to shift our conversation to talking about AMP. And since we're already talking about loading results from search, maybe we could use that as a segue. So... I search for articles all the time in Google search, and sometimes those articles that I click on are extremely slow to load. Other times they are very fast to load. Sometimes they're fast to load because of AMP, the Accelerated Mobile Pages Project. Explain what AMP is. What is the AMP project? Yeah, difficult question because it's a lot of things. 
But very quickly, it's a web components library that form a consistent way how you can publish web pages on the internet and bundle with an, a validator, which you can think of like a compiler that tells you whether your thing is good or bad. You, you know, just like any compiler tells you, you have a compilation error, you don't. So the work components library com combined with that compiler lead to a system where if the compiler says everything's good, then we have very high confidence that the outcome is a fast loading web page. And then besides the loading, there's you know more, all kinds of other things, but I think that's the easiest to understand part where you know we just say validate your page, and if you're successful, then the page you have is has very high likelihood of being a very fast experience. Softwareengineeringdaily.com is a WordPress website. If I wanted to have AMP support for softwareengineeringdaily.com, what would I need to do? So the best thing you can do is install the new WordPress plugin that Google is working on together with Automatic and a company called XWP, which we invested a lot of resources in recently. So the, we, there was a WordPress plugin for a long time, but it made some really ugly pages, like a blue header and like no customization. So you can, please don't do that. Install the current version 1.0 release candidate one, which I think came out yesterday. And it has a mode that's much more advanced where you can retain the entire like layout of your of your blog and is compatible with lots of plugins and stuff like that. It's the best way today to turn a WordPress blog or website into an AMP website. Can you talk in more detail about the more general process of adding AMP support to a web page, what that involves? Yeah, and I think I can, maybe I should spin it a little bit in terms of software engineering practices as well. So what... AMP introduced was a different way to make web pages. And we could have told people like, hey, you should like publish AMP instead of your normal web page. And what our experience is that, you know, that's not something people want. And also certainly when we first launched our developer preview, AMP was like 11 weeks old and it wasn't very stable. You know, the New York Times shouldn't have switched everything they have like to publishing AMP. That wouldn't have been a good idea at all. It would be very very bad idea at the time. And so we thought about how can we introduce a migration path so that folks can adopt AMP without throwing away everything they have. And so what we did was basically say, we introduced this new link tag, link rel AMP HTML, where you can say of this web page, there's an AMP version um, and it's at this URL. And so that's basically what you do. You, you make an AMP version of your web page and then you link your so-called canonical page, the, the notion of the primary URL of any particular resource says, you know, the AMP version is over there. And I think that was very helpful and that enabled folks to do this like kind of smooth migration. And what we're seeing now much more is that, you know, there's a problem with this approach, which is if you have two versions of everything, then you have to maintain it twice. And, you know, maybe they're both not as great as they could be. And so what we're seeing a lot is that folks now that, you know, AMP is three years old say, this is actually working really well for me. And I use it as the primary technology to build my web page. But, you know, that's just one way to do it. We, we certainly still support the so-called paired mode where you we have uh, both something built not based on AMP and something built based on AMP. Okay, so the old version of support, with, well, that people can still use is I've got softwareengineeringdaily.com slash podcasts slash JavaScript with Malt Ubel, and I might have a link rel 
AMP HTML. So I've got a specific tag on that page that tells a search crawler where my AMP-supported page is located so that the search crawler can associate that my original URL with the AMP page, which I have somewhere else. So let's look at this from the search crawler's point of view. So if the search crawler is, you know, the Google search crawler is crawling softwareengineeringdaily.com and it finds one of my podcast episodes with an AMP page associated with it, what does the crawler do? Yeah, it will also basically crawl that other version of your page and then associate those URLs to be in one canonical set which isn't a new concept. So it's, I mean, it's very common for a website to have multiple versions of the same URL. The most common one would be like having a mobile version of a desktop website, right? So the notion of having more than one URL for the same resource is something that's, that just happens and it's, it's very common on the web. And so this link tag for AMP is just you know, adding one new way to associate yet another URL with that same canonical set. So from that point of view, it's not something very special for the search crawler. Then when does the AMP cache get involved in the process of putting that AMP page in a place where it can be accessed more quickly? Yeah, so maybe I should step back a little bit. So one of the design properties of AMP is that it's designed so that pages don't make assumptions about the origin they run on. Origin is on the you know web idea of... Uh, schema plus a domain. And so you can put them in different places and serve them in an optimized way. So that could be like, I don't know, via BitTorrent or in a native app or just on a different URL. And so we have this concept of AMP caches, which are effectively CDNs that serve AMP documents. And what is a big architectural shift on the web is that they these AMP caches are owned and operated and associated with a platform that's referring traffic as opposed to the website that's hosting the content. And so when Google links an AMP page, it goes with the Google AMP cache. What this does, is it has one very obvious effect, both that it's typically faster, even in cases where folks have very nice CDNs, of which there are quite a few providers, obviously, we can, because it's on Google's infrastructure, and you're, if you're already on Google.com, you have an active connection that this can be served through and so forth. So that's one fa- fact of just a physical improvement of speed and then on the other side, what you get is something we call privacy-preserving preloading. And that's actually key to the instant loading aspect of AMP that we haven't talked about yet. So AMP can load pages faster than possible, let's say, by the speed of light. And the only way how that works, obviously, is that when you search for something on Google Search and Google thinks it's actually a very high likelihood that you will actually eventually click on a result, then the pages and, and associated resources already preloaded in the background. And then once you click the result, the browser doesn't actually have to go to the network to make that navigation, and that, which is obviously faster and which is effectively the only way to get to instant speed on you know the typical connections people are actually on. And the privacy-preserving aspect that comes in here is that it's not cool and it's not expected on the web that just because, for example, you search for something that, you know, the, let's say number one search result page learns your interest because maybe you clicked the second link, which was Wikipedia, and you didn't want the first one to learn that you, you know, interested in this topic. 
So that's why we only preload from the AMP cache, which is a Google-controlled serving system, and it doesn't leak any information to the publisher. So at this point, basically, Google already knows you search for something. So the preloading doesn't leak any information to any third party. And so we can like basically do this in a way that's both really fast, but also uh, respects user privacy. The spec for an AMP cache that you've described makes complete sense. It makes sense why that would be useful, but it also centralizes the notion of loading these accelerated mobile pages. Well, I guess, no, it only centralizes the notion of uh, loading these AMP pages in a, this is just for a search-specific application. So it would make sense for Google to maintain an AMP cache because Google has a search application, and you would want to do this kind of privacy-preserving prefetching in response to a search query. There may be other kinds of, of mobile applications where you want lists of AMP pages that are, are served from different places other than a search index. So, for example, I think Cloudflare has applications that they can serve AMP pages for. How would the usage of, of Cloudflare caching vary from the example you gave for, for Google Search doing AMP caching? Yeah, so I think you make a good point in that centralization is actually not the right notion here because what really happens is that specifically for traffic referred from entity X, that next hop is still f- served from entity X. And with that, you know, you, the user was already there, right? So the there's no additional centralization going on. And you can't publish AMP documents by like publishing them to the AMP cache. You, you have to put them on the web. They always have to be on the web. They can't not be on the web. And I think that's an, it's a very important design feature of AMP. So it's really only the idea that that serving is being kind of facilitated by the application you're already using. And you can definitely think of other use cases where you might want something like this and it would make sense. So as you say, Cloudflare actually offers an M cache. There is just, you know, actually a couple of weeks ago, Bing launched theirs. Obviously, Bing's use case is like very similar to, to Google's. You could imagine that apps like news reading apps, Google News or Flipboard would make take advantage of something like this. And other places that refer a lot of traffic, like for example, Reddit, might be like very different use cases that kind of fall under the same idea. So just to be clear, every page that has an AMP page associated with it, it's also going to have a normal URL associated with it. Is that right? No, that's not right. You can use AMP just for your normal URL, right? Depending on your choice. Basically, that, that's what we talked about earlier, where you either pair them together or you just use AMP for the, the main URL. Got it. There are some examples where I have loaded an AMP page that is still super slow. So the, the worst actors that I always deal with are recipe sites. Like I'll search for, you know, fried okra. And I'll click on the fried okra AMP page because it's the top result and I think it's going to load quickly. And it still loads extremely slowly. What's going on? What are they doing wrong on the recipe sites where AMP still loads slowly? I don't know the concrete example. The main thing that you can certainly still do with AMP is just to have, you know, lots of images that are unnecessary 
and uh, maybe hide the content. I otherwise I really don't have good examples for why this might go wrong. I think we certainly have seen a lot of success in the recipe space that, as you say, ha- has some issues and haven't seen it get much better. I kind of glossed over how AMP actually works, so we should talk about that in more detail. Is all of the content from an AMP page, so if we're talking about the Google search example, is all of the content getting prefetched, or is there still some content on the page that is not fetched until you actually click on the link? Yeah, good question. So what we do is that AMP controls all resource loading. So it controls for each image, for each iframe, for each video, these type of external resources. It controls when they're loaded. And what we use this for, and which is a very common technique, obviously, on the internet, is we use it for lazy loading. So that you know resources that might be further down the page aren't loaded until you're more likely to actually scroll to them. And for the pre-render phase, we have a special version of this where only resources that match two requirements are actually pre-rendered. So the first one is only stuff in the first viewport, so which you can actually see post-click will be pre-rendered. I think that makes sense, right? So you get the impression of everything being there, but everything below the fold isn't there yet. And that kind of, I think, is the best trade-off between resource usage because there would be a lot of wasted bytes if you load more, more images from the same page that you can't see right away and the user appearance. And the second thing is we only load resources that we can load from that privacy-preserving point of view that I explained earlier. And what that really means is only resources that themselves can be loaded from the AMP cache. And so AMP components have to opt into being pre-renderable, but default they're not. So for example, what you might get is the images are pre-renderable for videos. We only pre-render the poster frame, but we don't the video. And for iframes, we you know we can provide a placeholder, but by default we would do nothing. So you can have these degenerate AMP pages that are really just an iframe, and so those would would be a good example of potentially having bad bad performance where you you know load them, but they really just say like load that other web page inside of me, and that will obviously be arbitrarily slow depending on how fast that iframe loads. That sounds like what the recipe sites are doing. Uh, don't not, yeah, I wouldn't say that. That's not impossible for sure, yeah. <laughs> what are some other best practices for designing AMP pages? And maybe we could just talk about what kinds of components are typically found in AMP pages and how the construction and the design of an AMP page differs from a non-AMP page. The main design goal of AMP is that however you use it, the so-called HTTP waterfall to render the page should be as small as possible. So the way to think about that is the main enemy of fast loading is actually latency. It's not bandwidth. So even on LTE, you're often in in situations where your latency to talk to the network is around, let's say, 400 milliseconds. And that's fine. Like 400 milliseconds is a fine latency if if you need to make a single connection and get a response. But what you often see on the web are so-called waterfalls. So where you fetch a file and the file says, oh, I actually need that other file. Another file comes and says, oh, no, I also need that other file. And so with a, this three depths waterfall, you had 1,200 milliseconds. So already at one second load time. 
So vast majority of web pages on the internet have like these very long waterfalls. And again, like every time you go through that full on latency, it just multiplies. And so AMP is designed to keep the maximum depth of the waterfall to be as small as possible. It depends on a few factors, but it's worst case three. And that is, I think, what you know really makes a difference is that you know you can like do whatever you want to that page, but you'll you know, you'll never be worse than that. And then we're also trying to make that even better than the um, that, that than this three. But that's kind of where we where we start. We have some optimizations on the M cache where we actually get it down to reliably only exactly one resource, which is the HTML page, right? So obviously you have to download the HTML page. There's nothing you can do, but that's kind of what we do to to really optimize performance. So that's, that's kind of the baseline, right? That's the big baseline architecture, minimizing the depth of the HTTP waterfall at scale. Uh, you then have basically the whole web platform at your disposal. You can use HTML, you can use CSS. The one missing, missing piece, at least for now, is there's no JavaScript that you can write. Uh, we're actually changing that, but you know maybe we can find some time later today to talk about what we're going to do. But for now, no JavaScript. If you need to implement interactivity, you have two options. You can use either one of the AMP extensions, which are basically web components. And the other option is you use a technology that we call AMP bind, which is a simple way of adding interactivity to your page. Basically, you can listen to click events and change some state, and you can express in the page how your page should change for like in response to those state changes. Um, so that's basically what you do. It's normal web programming. You're just using those AMP extensions for functionality. I think that's basically it. There's one other interesting, I don't really want to call it limitation. So we only allow you to have 50 kilobytes of CSS per page. And I think it's an interesting limitation in that 50 kilobytes is really enough for any page you might conceive. People are going to disagree with you on that. But it's you know it's quite a bit, actually. If you hand write 50 kilobytes, it's a, bit, it's a lot of JavaScript, a list of CSS. But it's not enough if you have a large website to have the same on every page. And so it's kind of a forcing function to what I would call CSS hygiene. So you have to, if you want to do this at scale, you have to put a system in place that knows what CSS a page actually needs and then limits the CSS to what the page actually needs or uses. And then you can easily make it under 50K. And so while this seems like a very static limitation, it really is just a kind of a motivation for folks to really you know, implement a system that has, you know, reasonable amounts of CSS at scale. And that's the kind of thing that we try to do with AMP is to kind of put these little motivations into places where, you know, you could have done this all along. You can obviously do the same optimization to your non-AMP page, but for some reason people don't. In AMP, you just don't have a different choice. And, and obviously that then results in better outcomes. Since you hinted at it, let's go there in terms of the, the JavaScript restriction. So you said, if I heard you correctly, JavaScript is not usable in AMP pages today, but you would like to change that. You would like to allow people to add some dynamism to their AMP pages. Why is there such a restriction on JavaScript, and what are you doing to change those restrictions? So the reason why there is this restriction is once you add something that's Turing complete to you know a system, then it's much harder to reason about the system. And AMP is all about being able to reason about the load properties of a system. And again, like, you know, you can implement very sophisticated interactivity today, but people really want JavaScript and they should have it, right? Like AmpBind, for example, it doesn't have functions, loops, if statements, or even, you know, classes. There's no abstractions. 
and obviously you need the abstraction. So we do want to add JavaScript support. What we we've done and already with Mbind is one. You know, people say like, wouldn't it suddenly load like much slower? We actually have a very simple answer to this, which is we with Mbind today and with JS and AMP in the future, we won't allow the JavaScript to change the page when it loads. Period. Right. So you have to on the server side render out everything you want the way you want it. And then you can use JavaScript on the client to react to user action. And so it buys basically by definition doesn't impact load performance. And then you can basically let the state machine that you, whatever you implemented, be driven by user action. And I think that's a model that works really well for the vast majority of our pages. There's some things you can't implement with it, right? Like Google Docs would be very hard with like collaboration. But in, you know, in general, for the vast majority of web pages, this is a very good model. And so I think we, it's a good step forward for us. And I mean, we're, we're taking this one step at a time. We're currently implementing the, the technology behind this, and we'll see how it goes. One thing we are, we're betting on is we actually t- created this technology called Worker DOM, which is a way to expose subset of a page's DOM into a web worker, which is a different thread that JavaScript runs in. So that's another thing we're doing because it's in a different thread. It can't directly impact any of the performance aspects of the main page. And also because of the different thread, AMP gets to control when it starts and when it gets to accept messages from that thread, right? So basically, because these are shared nothing threads, the thread can say, I would really like to like change that headline to different font. And the page will just say, well, you didn't get a user action. I'm not accepting your change, just as one example. That interactivity to the page, sorry, maybe you already said this, but does that prohibit network calls? It doesn't prohibit network calls. What it does, what we're currently not planning on doing at least, so again, like we're taking one step at a time, is if you have in the, a network call that's more of a like event source where you get events from the server, which you might want like for some kind of live updating feed or you want some kind of you know collaborate editor or stuff like that. You couldn't build this with this technology because you always need the user to click something to change the page. But I think as a user, I think that's great. Like I you know, I think the page can change all at once, but it's always nice to have the user acknowledge that they want something changed. And we have some specific technology for live feeds and so forth, but those all have to be declarative so that we can kind of have a uniform UX. If you want to use JavaScript, basically, you can. You have to always wait for the user to do something, and then you can react to it. Now, one thing I know you wanted to mention was the change of governance in AMP. AMP is, I think, moving to a fully open source. And, well, I guess it was. it's always been open source, but the governance model, the direction, the steering of the open source project has now been delegated to a wide variety of of industry uh, interests i think including cloudflare and and several people who are not affiliated with google so we could talk about that but we only have like 5 minutes left and i really wanted to ask you about webassembly so i'll leave it up to you <laughs> can we can we move on to webassembly or do you want to say anything else about governance i don't need to say much about it i think the only thing i want to say is basically amp was more successful than we ever imagined and so it was time to really make sure that you know it's not just like us caring about users and all the constituencies, but like them to get a word, right? Because it's such a big impact on the overall on the web. And so we just wanted everyone to have a voice. But yeah, it's a deep, deep topic. So let's talk about WebAssembly. <laughs> Great. We just did three or four shows about WebAssembly, and I am 
pretty excited about it. So I think people listening will probably have some perspective on what WebAssembly is. How do you think it will change the web and the way that applications on the web are built? It'll be a process. So where it will have the most immediate impact is in the gaming sector, where it has direct applicability. We've seen, for example, AutoCAD ported to the web. So that's another obvious case where you have an existing code base written in language X and you don't really want to rewrite it. So in that case, WebAssembly is a great technology. What I am definitely excited about is the the future use cases that are yet to be discovered because it's opening up a whole world of possibilities. And it's, it's difficult to predict what that actually is going to be. Just yesterday, Mozilla had a blog post that they massively reduced the time it takes to call between JavaScript and WebAssembly. And I think that is a game changer because it enables to build applications that are more classic DOM-based web applications where the you know, core application logic is, is living inside of WebAssembly. So I think that's that's the biggest development that I'm excited about. And the way browsers work today is, you know, Mozilla announces yesterday, it puts a lot of pressure on other vendors. So in my view, when you put on a two-year hat, that basically means everyone will catch up. So it's time to plan for a world where, where every browser is fast with this respect. And it really enables you to, you know, start using Rust or if you really want to like C++ or Go to build these type of applications. So Google has this history of on the backend languages, there are a set of blessed languages. There's, I think it's like Golang, Python, uh, maybe Dart, Java. There's some list of, of blessed languages that backend developers can use. I think the most common ones are Java, C++, and Go. Okay, Java, C++, Go. Now I can imagine like WebAssembly might make it so that there are similar constraints necessary on the front end, because you could conceivably use just about anything in a WebAssembly module on the front end. Do you see that kind of explosion of potential front end web application module compositions? Do you see that potentially happening? Or I guess that would just be a slow, a slow transition anyway. So maybe not anything to worry about today. I think what you can look at is Android and NDK, right? The native development kit, because it's used, but it's not that much used, right? You have a lot of applications written in Java and Android, and then you have a few applications written in C++ or you know, whatever someone liked. And I think for the time being, it's a good bet that the distribution will be very similar, if that makes sense. Okay. I guess to close off, what do you think about progressive web apps? Because you know, if you get WebAssembly, if you get AMP pages really making the web a much better experience. Because I mean, we're still in this era where so many web pages are just the loading experience is really awful. And I'm glad that AMP kind of pushed people to really update their standards for how things look. But we are getting to a place where people really have all the tools they need to build progressive web apps. But progressive web apps still don't have too much traction, I don't think. Do you think they'll ever get traction? I actually think they have a lot of traction where there was a bit of a mistake is, you know, if you ask five people what progressive web apps are, you get five different answers. So it wasn't the greatest like branding exercise in the history of the web. It was basically just like new technologies in 2016 that, you know, happened to be on Vogue in that year. And so I think there was a bit of a missing 
coherent vision what that would actually be. Having said that, the way I usually group this is most of the stuff in the progressive web space are all about like making web applications as engaging and as re-engaging as what we've seen with native apps. So where there's lots of stuff like notifications that pull people back into your app after you've you've tried it once. And I think that really is a very strong story, especially combined with AMP, where you have this like completely seamless onboarding where like, okay, you just have to click on this link and you have the app done. And then bring the things that we learned from native apps for how to keep users engaging into that lifecycle. And I think that's that combination is a is an absolute killer feature. And there, I, I can't see how it wouldn't be successful. There certainly is a lot of room for improvement. Is that the apps that people are building, while they perform from a business point of view, I think there is a big gap in terms of user experience. And so that's something that I'm certainly very interested in how we can solve that at scale. We need to make it so that people say, "I want to build a PWA," and then just basically read the manual, follow the instructions, and the outcome is as good as some native iOS app. And I don't think we're there yet as a web community where that kind of flow is possible. Right now, people like start, I want to build a PWA, and they start out being like confused by like all the tools and the menu of stuff. And that really like leads to the outcomes not being as great as they could be. And I think that's kind of the biggest challenge that we're facing right now. Well said. Well, Malta Ubel, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. And I look forward to seeing how the AMP project progresses and any other stuff you work on in the future. Thanks for having me. This was great. Wow.